Hello and welcome to this August 2012 edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Francis Spufford. Francis Spufford, a former Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year, is perhaps best known for I May Be Some Time, Ice and the English Imagination, which won the Writers Guild Award for Best Non-Fiction Book of 1996, and The Child That Books Built, described as a daring autobiographical book by Robert McCrum in The Observer. He went on to praise Spufford's tact, decency and self-control, and his acute literary intelligence. Back in 2010, I spoke to Francis about Red Plenty, a genre-defying book situated somewhere between fiction and non-fiction, praised by the New York Times as both learned and lyrical. The book uses the tools and techniques of fiction to explore the Soviet Union's attempts under Khrushchev to outstrip the United States and create a society of plenty through a centrally planned economy. That podcast interview is still available on the Faber website and on iTunes. Francis's new book, Unapologetic, is much more personal and polemical than anything he has written before. The subtitle makes plain his purpose. Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. Rejecting arguments about the existence or non-existence of God as an ultimately futile pursuit, he instead offers an impassioned account of what Christianity means to him as a lived experience, and one which meshes very well with the true character of human nature, an attribute which, he contends, the new atheists take little account of. It is, he says in this interview, a report from inside my head, because some of this stuff has been boiling on my tongue for a while. I've been wanting to get it said with a mixture of frustration and passion. Frustration and passion are conveyed by the language of the book, which is forthright and challenging, by which I mean he's unafraid to swear and to shock if it will help him convey the importance of what he feels to be at stake. I met Francis to record this interview in a redundant church near Cambridge recently. St John's Duxford dates from the late 12th century, is still consecrated and is now in the care of the church's conservation trust. It's also near the Duxford branch of the Imperial War Museum, one or two of whose aircraft you may hear go overhead during the interview. I began by asking Francis to tell me about his own religious upbringing. I was a child of the still church-going 1960s, so I, I went to church every Sunday with my parents and drunk in the Church of England as part of the, the atmosphere. And I, I, I shook it off or, or dropped it off when I was 13. And while I was, while I was gone, the world shook off quite a lot of Christianity too. Came back to it 20-odd years later as an adult in my 30s, having been a contented atheist all of that time. Came back to it following an emotional thread, not because I had not because I'd reasoned myself into it or because I had been suddenly struck dumb on a road to Damascus. I felt my way along a, a piece of emotional string that made sense and found myself back here. It looks different as an adult. Um, one of the things that strikes me now looking at, at a lot of non-believers' accounts is, is that they, they think of religion as childish. and in almost every case, that's because they were children the last time they thought about it seriously. Um, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to suggest ways in which it's a religion for grown-ups, that it, it answers to a set of grown-up needs and offers a rather 
tough and fine-grained account of what adult life feels like to a kind of averagely hapless, averagely accident-prone, averagely well-intentioned and bad-intentioned adult. It seems to me that part of the way that, that religion has receded for us as a society is that we've kind of forgotten that it, it fits in at more points than in the primary school nativity play. And you mentioned emotional sense there, and, the, and that is where the centre of the gravity of the book resides, rather than trying to lock horns in some kind of ultimately sterile intellectual debate. It frustrates me that the argument that we seem to be having about religion at the moment is pretty solidly the wrong argument as as far as as I'm concerned. Somebody like Richard Dawkins thinks of religion as a kind of form of wonky cosmology, a, a, an alternative to science, which offers a set of propositions about about the world, which you can demonstrate are much, much less satisfying than um, than scientific ones. But as far as I'm concerned, this is a a major category error. Religion, which happens in the same uncertainty that everybody else is is in about ultimate ends and and meaning. So nobody knows anything. Faith positions are what you have what you have on offer, really. Religion works as a set of as a set of emotions, as a set of experiences. People don't have religious emotions because they've signed up to the religious ideas. You can't talk people out of religious emotions by challenging the ideas, nor can you talk people into them. People sign up to the ideas because they have the emotions, they not the other way around. And it seemed to me that that one of the big kind of communicative barriers we've got now is that there are almost no descriptions of what the religious emotions feel like that would make sense without you bringing religious assumptions to them. There's, there's no or very little attempt to talk in the ordinary language of experience, which is perverse since religion deals with ordinary experience and its and its ordinary language. So my intention was to was to try and describe religion as a network of feelings in a way that would make it recognizable to people who aren't necessarily drawn to it, aren't tempted by it, but might be interested to see how it can possibly make sense emotional sense in this century. You describe the book as a report from inside your head, which I thought was a very nice way of putting it. And you want to convey what the experience of having a relationship with God is like, and you say in the book explicitly, in the same way as you might try to describe the feelings of being in love with someone. Using, I hope, the the tools you'd use to describe any experience that a reader doesn't necessarily share, but which you can, which you can come to with, with the same kind of leap of sympathy that you might make for a, a character in a novel who's going through something you haven't been through, which is which is imagination. Religion is itself a kind of uh, a form of human imagination, which isn't to say that its objects are imaginary, but what you do as a participant in it calls on the vital power of the imagination to negotiate all of those bits of the world which we don't necessarily know for sure about. So what I hope I've written is an imaginative book that provides a kind of a sympathetic journey even for those who don't necessarily want to take it themselves or are, or are drawn to it. It is a report from the inside of the inside of my head partly because I've, I've been kind of some of this stuff has been boiling on my tongue for a while and I've been I've been wanting to get it said with um mixture of, of frustration and kind of passion.
connection, a sense that there is something large and significant and very ordinary for humans. I mean, it, it is only a little Western European peculiarity to think that religion is over. Kind of 95% of the human race would beg to disagree. And maybe we're wrong. But on the other hand, that ought to be quite interesting. That's an awful lot of human experience, which ought not to become haha, a closed book. My book is supposed to be an, an opening book. Did you feel it was a risky book to write for you personally, as, a, as both as a writer and as a self-exposing human being? Self-exposure is exactly what makes it what makes it feel risky to have done. I was nervous about doing it. I'm nervous about having done it now. But on the other hand, the kind of the wall of embarrassment that there is in our culture about talking about religion seems to me to be also an imaginative challenge and an imaginative opportunity. And there is something quite exciting about determinedly pole vaulting over a wall of embarrassment. To some extent, the book is probably louder, ruder, funnier and more forceful than it would have been if I hadn't had to confront embarrassment in, in the production of it. I should say that, I mean, this is an immensely safe society to talk about religion and nobody nobody is persecuting me or even inconveniencing me for being for being a Christian. They're merely looking at me with a sense of dimly uncomprehending pity, which is quite annoying. But no, I, I'm deeply impatient with the idea that, that Christians in Britain ought to feel sorry for ourselves. Nah. You mentioned the language there, and it is indeed uncompromising. What, what, what's behind that? Several things. I mean, I think, I think what you're referring to politely there, George, is the way that this is a book about religion which says fuck quite a lot. So let's, let's, let's say that for several reasons. In the first place, because um, I wanted to put down a kind of marker of tone to say this is not happening in that polite, genteel little, little mood reservation we allow for, for talking about marginal stuff like religion. This happens somewhere over towards the profane middle of ordinary ordinary experience. Um, I come from a foul-mouthed generation. I tend to say fuck quite a lot, so there it is. But also, I wanted to call on a bit of linguistic force and and violence, because part of what I'm trying to do justice to is, is the ways in which people are destructive and do harm to themselves and other people and their own, their own best intentions. So talking about fucking things up seems to me to be the right language for that. And if it comes with a little faint tremolo of shock that it's in a book like this, all the fucking better. One of the core... And it's funny. <coughs> you, may have noticed, you may have noticed that swearing is both big and clever. <laughs> you indeed swear so much that you've had to come up with a, an abbreviation for what, what is in fact also a serious concept in the book, the human proclivity to fuck things up, which you see as something which Christianity fundamentally recognises and the atheists who put adverts on the side of buses saying, you know, get on and enjoy your life are fundamentally in denial about yeah, I think I think that there is an awareness of the of the tragic and uncontrollable dimensions of life in Christianity, which is not there in some of the dafter, blander forms of atheism. Though there are impressive atheists who are fully aware of those things, no 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 argument from from me. The HPTFTU. Um, an acronym I hope that the whole world will have tripping from their tongues shortly, though I could have made it more graceful, I don't know how. Um, the Huppert for two? No, probably not. Is in there as a deliberately artificial word because 
part of my problem is that the word sin has been colonized as a brand name for ice cream, truffles, red lingerie, things like that, and now conveys completely the wrong things if you want to try to explain to people what religion gets worked up about. And we're talking, I mean to be talking, not about enjoyable naughtiness, not about sex and its glorious forbiddenness. No, 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 no. I want to talk about, I want to talk about the ways in which we act deliberately against our own best interests, not just the way we fuck up, amiable screwing up, dripping over our own feet. No, not just the pratfall, but the actual, the dimension of human experience, which has to do with, with the deliberate breaking of things um, and of our own best intentions. And it seems to me that an account of human nature which hasn't got this in is doomed, as, you know, as a lot of our culture now is, to, to oscillate pointlessly between a kind of bland bland optimism about human beings most of the time and then every now and again as you know as predictably as as rain in summer this terrible surprise that that we could be capable of bad stuff and we are capable of bad stuff it's part it's part of us and unless unless the darker bits of the picture get get integrated in i don't see any possibility for living on peaceful terms with yourself that, 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 that aren't in some way self-deception. It may strike some people as odd that as a religious person I'm deeply opposed to self-deception, but in fact my experience of religion is that it is constantly obliging you to, to confront the difficult, the particular, the challenging, that it, it, it's calling forth from you the most generous realism of which you are capable about what you're like and about what other people are like. When Christianity announces that you should be loving people, it does not mean that you should be pretending they're nice. On the contrary, it's about beginning with awareness of all the ways in which we really aren't very nice, and after which any love you are capable of managing wouldn't have some unexploded bomb in the foundations just just waiting to surprise you when something goes wrong you use the concept of mending mm. a fair amount in the book and i wondered if you'd say what you what you mean by that and whether you think christianity has a a particular kind of mending that that sets it apart from other forms of i guess putting ourselves what you're talking about i guess in the book often is finding some way to achieve some sense of wholeness or peace with yourself after having been through crisis or, or trouble. So, 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 so how do you understand mending in a Christian sense and what, what makes it special? Christianity is a radically pessimistic religion in one way, in that it assumes that absolutely everybody will fail, which after a little while of, of putting your hands in the air and being aghast, turns out to be a very liberating idea because it means you don't need to pretend anymore. It doesn't, however, cover the picture entirely black. It just acknowledges the bits of darkness in the picture as a way of seeing the picture straight. And I, I, I use the vocabulary of mending because mended things still have the lines of glue that show where you smashed them in the first place. And Christianity does not offer amnesia or a pretense that your past didn't happen or that, or that crisis didn't come. It doesn't pretend that you weren't changed by what happens to you. It allows your history to go on being your history. We, we are, after all, the records of our, of our past selves. Um, 
What it does is to say that there is far more scope than in our more despairing moments we might think to put the bits back together and, and apply the glue, that far more is recoverable, far more can be picked up and put back together into a state that will, that will go serviceably onwards while you set about trying again. And in a way that's different from other forms of, of human mending, yeah. be, be, be well, the other religions or other, I almost said other therapies, or, or I suppose you should say therapies. Yes, it is. It's not like its big sister Judaism and its younger sister Islam, a religion of laws. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you that there is, there is a serviceable set of things that if you do it, you'll be okay. It's much more drastic and unreasonable than that. It tells you that you have to do impossible things and then you fail at them. But where it's terribly good is in how you then live with your sense of, of inevitable failure. A lot of the book is an attempt from first principles to describe the kind of central Christian idea of grace. I say idea, I could say emotion just as well. The central Christian experience of grace, which is one of being forgiven, of having of having the messes you can't clear up for yourself nevertheless returned to you in some some sustainable state. I've done my best in the book. It's easier to write about than to talk about because it requires you to steer to steer between a kind of a language of pessimism and a language of of kind of extraordinary hopefulness without denying either either side of it. Luckily, when I actually go to church, I could just let other people's words take take the strain. How difficult was it to write the chapter on suffering? Because there's a, there's a whole field of human endeavour called theodicy, which is an attempt to explain, to, ra- to, to reconcile the existing of suffering and the existence of an omnipotent, benevolent God. And you, you review some of the, the major currents in it, and they all basically come up wanting. So is that a major obstacle on the, on the path? It's the problem, the problem of pain, which comes in quote marks or italics or underlining because it's, it's a famous obstacle on the path of faith, seems to me to be something that almost everybody travels past if they're being honest with themselves. Self-deception is always a possibility for everyone at all times, but if you are trying to look straight on at, at what it implies that there is a loving God, then, then the unloving and dangerous and unfair aspects of the world become a problem and not a solved problem. This, it seems to me to be a very important aspect of intellectual honesty to insist that it's not a solved problem. I have help here in that I, I come from a family whose religion acknowledged that it was an unsolved problem from the beginning. My, my mother, Margaret Spufford, wrote a very good religious book about 25 years ago called Celebration, which is about all of the ways in which theology doesn't help you to deal with with chronic pain and it was kind of my starting point that that what Christianity ultimately offers is not a rationalization that there are some weights which is it is it is offensive to pretend you can lift through argument because instead of instead of an argument or a justification what what Christianity has at its center is is a story by which I don't mean an untrue story or a myth in the pejorative sense of those words, but definitely a story-shaped story, one that makes sense for us as a, as a story does by showing us human beings 
in time passing towards passing towards kind of endings which human beings do and it seemed to me that i had to come up with a way of retelling the central christian story of christ here as elsewhere i had to find a way to use language that that connected directly to experience there's a long tradition of christians doing this there's a very good version from the 1930s called the man who would be king by dorothy sayers the um, crime writer and dante translator so i didn't think i was doing something insufferably presumptuous though it felt very very odd to be um sitting there doing my version of the gospels there's a kind of mad presumptuousness about it but then mad presumptuousness is what gets impossible projects done and i'm i'm a definite believer in the value of trying impossible projects my impression of the gospel according to spufford was it was quite light on consideration of the afterlife and you do say explicitly in the book i am a very this worldly christian so how large does the afterlife or thoughts of the afterlife loom in your own christianity not very large at all but i am in this still a reasonably orthodox christian because the central story the central christian story is one about redemption and living with your past and um and life being enlarged and there are lots of ways life can be enlarged it doesn't have to be enlarged by becoming of endless duration it's never been very important to my faith that i may end up playing a twangly harp forever and ever and ever what does matter to me is the radically changed relationship with with my own history that becomes that becomes possible again it seemed to me that i was I'm not, of course i'm manipulating the story anyone who tells a story is deciding which facets of it to turn uppermost um but everything i i found in the gospels is really there and it is a perfectly central and orthodox understanding of christianity to say that actually it's not a deal about living forever it's a deal about living now and that when eternity comes to visit time and time is altered by it which is the christian picture of the universe what matters with your time is to live in it not necessarily to to direct it to the hereafter um the now will do me nicely the now seems to me to be quite wide enough and full enough to be going on with let me ask you finally francis about the now and specifically about the church of england mm. i listen to debates about women bishops and i do i do rather despair in this day and age and you do you say not just on this question but the church is slow and late and pathetically pathetically reluctant but it will get there in the end mm. now this is a, a body to which you belong do, do, do you feel a sense of despair sometimes about the the questions which it gets tangled up in frequently yeah <laughs> more days than not really but i love the church of england as well um at my younger sister's funeral some time ago i heard the the vicar say during the sermon but if there is a god and there are those of us who think that there might be and i thought to myself i love the church of england i love the studied elaborate roundabout non-coerciveness of that statement i love the way that it acknowledges 
complexity and uncertainty. I love the way that it, it piles conditional upon conditional. As churches go, this one is, is not a very barbarous one. It is, however, slow, and it will always be slow. Something I've, I've tried to develop in the book is, is the reason why churches are slow-moving bodies. Um, there are times, thank God, I mean that literally, um, in which the church does manage to make a break for the future and to, to offer some kind of sudden gift of insight or moral discovery to the society and sometimes it doesn't i say it'll get there in the end it'll get there in the end about women and and gay relationships but there'll be something else which the church is slow and late about it will never finish arriving it will never become a sleek clean tidy unchallenging modern body it will always be this strange thing and a strange thing which if you're a believer is precious for reasons which are independent of its record at dealing with topical issues. When I hear about the church stumbling about with women bishops, I can always set something else against that because the church, if you're a believer, isn't just an organization or a bunch of people doing things. It is it is the way that humanity attempts to to face the overwhelming generosity being offered by by God. It's a wonky, broken, inadequate channel for something extraordinary. And so long as the something extraordinary continues to run through it, you can put up with quite a lot of rubbish about gay marriage. Francis Spufford, unapologetic, is out in September in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk where you can listen to Francis read an extract from the book and watch a short video interview shot in the same afternoon in St John's, Duxford. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber Podcast in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. And goodbye.